In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again this morning, as we should at all times when we pray or when we study Scripture. Help us to enlighten, or we ask that you help us to enlighten our minds and our hearts through what Scripture is telling us. Not only the words, let us get past some of the visual effects, you might say, and uh, really get to the message. We ask your blessing on our efforts today and as we continue our study of the book of Revelation. So we thank you for this time together, and we thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. I'm sure you just all understood what this, uh, these two chapters were all about, so I don't really have to talk about anything, do I? Uh, yes, all right. Like St. Peter, I'll do it for one who doesn't. Yes. These uh, two chapters, 17 and 18, up to the first part of 19, uh, are probably two of the most confusing uh, chapters uh, in this whole book. Uh, they're brief, and yet they are full of information if you can dig it out. And that's what I'm going to try to help you to do this morning. All right. The uh, this section is called Babylon the Great. Well, I'm not so sure that some of the Jewish people at the time of Christ would can call it that. They might call it something else, but not that. All right. But in order to understand the phrase that is being used here, uh, Babylon in a derogatory way, in fact, they go so far as to saying the whore of, of Babylon and so forth. Uh, so we have to do a little bit of background uh, history. I want to dig some of the meanings of things out so that you get the background of what this is all about. I found it rather interesting, and I hope you will. Uh, we have to go back um, and do a kind of review of what Judaism is all about, and we did that in our last session, uh, which ended last fall, but nevertheless, we have to kind of repeat some of the stuff in order to bring it forward and put it into the context of the book of Revelation. As I have said uh, at the beginning of virtually every session that I teach, is that everything that God has done, is doing, and will do, is connected with his plan of salvation. It's important that you understand that and, and hopefully accept it. God's plan of salvation is the overall design of what he has done, particularly uh, for the people of his creation, which of course is all of us, um, and those who accept him in this context. The book of Revelation uh, 
only hints at some of this. And there is reasons for that. As I've said often, this is sort of the last call. So we have to go back and take a look at God's plan of salvation and how it evolved over the many years uh, of mankind. It is mentioned sort of in a hidden way, but nevertheless it is mentioned right up front in the book of Genesis where God uh, confronts Adam and Eve for disobeying his direct command of not eating the fruit of the tree in the center of the garden. And again, the eating of the apple or whatever fruit it was uh, is not the important point of that. It is that mankind disobeyed a direct command of God. He had set, God had set limits uh, to their uh, freedom and they exceeded those limits. And therefore, God really had to set up some way to rectify this because as I said many times in the past, the rules of divine, um, well, the rules of, rules of divinity, the greatness of God, the divine being of God requires that God cannot live with sinful mankind. And God knowing that, of course, right up front, uh, it's, let me digress a wee bit, uh, when parents have children and want children, they, if they're mature parents, uh, they know that their children are going to disobey them at some point in time and hurt them, but that doesn't mean that they're not going to love them, and they will do everything to uh, help them past whatever problems that got them into that condition in the first place. And that is what God really had to do. So he sets up this plan of salvation, which enabled mankind, who has a free will, to make choices, and when he makes the wrong choices and realizes it and regrets that, he then has a way of coming back into the good graces of God. So that at the end of his life, God then can accept him into heaven to live with him uh, in all eternity without, uh, you know, fear of any other problems or sins or whatever. So, the unraveling of this plan, first through Adam and Eve, and then we jump uh, a number of centuries, you might say, to the beginning uh, of it in recorded history, and that is with Abraham. God makes a covenant with Abraham that if you keep my covenant, I will then give you and it's divided into three parts, okay? And one of those parts really is protection. But with Adam, I mean with Abraham, it was descendants, land, and protection. 
the protection part of it uh, was not fully explored or described uh, or defined in any way. It had to be worked out. But that protection really is in reference to the salvation that God was going to establish at a later date. So, that covenant was taken by Abraham and was a very important part of why Abraham acted as he did. And he accepted God's teachings and training and commands and followed them. And that's why even in the book of Hebrews and several other places, but in the book of Hebrews it says Abraham acted upon God in faith and therefore it was credited to him as righteousness. The covenant then was accepted by his family, which then was the nucleus of Judaism, or the Jewish nation. God's plan had to have a certain vehicle in order to go forward. The idea was that the family of Abraham would then increase and multiply and become a, a loving community that would be the voice of God or would be able to transmit the voice of God and his message to all other nations. And for a while, that is the way it worked out. But as time went on, the whole idea of covenant got sort of intermingled and confused with what these other nations were doing. For example, when they went to Egypt, they saw the Egyptians worshipping the sun and the moon and the stars and animals and serpents and so forth and so on. Uh, and they were prospering. They were having a great time. And so the Jewish people couldn't understand why their God was so hidden. And so they started to assimilate into a lot of the beliefs of the Egyptians. As time went on, this just got more embedded into their mind and their heart and their livelihood and their history. And it just got worse rather than better. And even as time went on, and they went into the promised land and developed uh, a much greater nation of themselves throughout Palestine, uh, the whole idea of covenant got confused, and it was more concerned with worshiping statues and all kinds of physical things rather than the God of heaven and earth and all creation. That never seemed to really take hold and be embedded. And even though they had all kinds of teachings, it still never got worked out. 
And David, King David, or Solomon, but more likely it was King David, started to have the Jewish people write down their histories. Up till that point in time, there was no Jewish history. And to the people of that time period, not only Jews, but all of the others, writing down their histories gave them some kind of identity because they shared those histories with others. They were proud of their histories. And we have a lot of those still in existence, the histories of the uh, Egyptians and the Chaldeans and some of the Assyrians and so forth and so on. So David asked the people to write down their histories. And as they would write them down, they began to realize that there was something missing. But they couldn't really understand what it was. And life went on. They went, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel uh, became so embedded with the surrounding pagan nations that they began to accept the same gods that the pagan nations uh, worshipped. And gods in this case, at this time period, was not the god of spirituality, but rather the god of war, the god of power, those kinds of things. Um, and it got so to the point that in the northern kingdom of Israel, Queen Jezebel set up her own school of prophets because she didn't like what the early prophets that God had established uh, were saying. And so she set up uh, a school that was dedicated to uh, Baal, B-A-A-L, uh, who was one of the pagan gods that was worshipped by many of the surrounding nations. The whole idea of covenant had gotten lost by this time. And when the people of Judaism, or the Jewish people, uh, were carted off into Babylon, even though the northern kingdom had been practically decimated by the Assyrians who worship their pagan gods. Uh, then the southern kingdom, for a while, about 130 years, were faithful in a way to the one true God, but not in the way God wanted them to be. He wanted them to be a loving community through whom he could speak to all nations, to all people. And that did not work out. So when the Babylonians conquered Israel and took most of those people off, they kept saying, well, God, you promised protection. Why didn't you protect us from the Babylonians? They could not understand why they were conquered by a pagan nation and God did nothing against that. 
or to protect them from that. It took a while for them to understand, and that during that while, the only book that they had by this time actually written down and it was not accepted when it was first written, was the book of Deuteronomy. Not so much in the way we have it today, but pretty much chapters 16 through 28, I believe it is, was taken to Babylon by the prophet Ezekiel. And while they were there, they weren't slaves in the way that we often think of slaves. They were more like indentured servants. And they had certain rights, and they had their own families and homes and so forth and so on, but they were still conquered people, and they were slaves uh, in a very broad sense. But they had nothing else to do in free time, so they decided that they would set up little communities to study this book that had not been accepted either in the northern kingdom of Israel or the southern kingdom of Judah up until this time. But this is all they had. Well, in the process of understanding this book, which was considered the book of the law, they finally began to realize that their whole idea of covenant was wrong because it was worshiping statues and physical things that man had made rather than something that God had made. And they began to realize that they had to start worshiping the God who gave them life, who gave them so much that they were really ignoring. And so they decided that if they got out of Babylon, they were going to observe the laws as the book of Deuteronomy, which was kind of the, you might say, the voice of Moses reenacted. And they were going to worship the God uh, and the covenant. And so there was a renewal there. However, once they got back to Israel, around the end of the 6th century BC, uh, they were so busy in rebuilding the temple, or partially rebuilding the temple, and reorganizing. Uh, they had no more king. Remember, the last king was... Uh, executed by the Babylonians. So the whole idea of the monarchy had now disappeared, and therefore the only person uh, that they had to look to was the high priest. And so the role of the high priest really took prominence in the ruling class of the Jewish people. But the high priest then became sort of a quasi-king. And the position of high priest uh, took on a royal atmosphere, and he liked that very much. Each one uh, thought it was a pretty good way of doing it. 
Now, when they got back to Israel, they were still under the domination of the Persians who had conquered the Babylonians. And then later, they were under the domination of the Greeks who had conquered the Persians. And then later on, you know, they were under the domination of the Romans who had conquered the Greeks. So, something was still missing. All right? And they realized that they will probably never be sovereign rulers of themselves as they were uh, way back at the time of King David. And that's why they lamented. And David was sort of their epitome or, or their idea of the ideal ruler because David did so much for them and David was a friend of God. they began to realize that they would never be their own rulers. And therefore, this idea of the promised land, Israel, had kind of lost its meaning. Because it wasn't really their promised land. It was now, you know, the Persians, the Greeks, and now the Romans. And that was not quite what they were hoping for. So that through the book of Deuteronomy, they began to realize that God was going to lead them into a new promised land, which was eventually heaven itself and a return to God. But then they were going to lament, well, who's going to lead us there? David was the one who formed Israel into a united kingdom, had united all of these other little tribes into a united kingdom. Well, who was going to do that now that David was no longer there and there was no other king there? The high priest was not a warrior. Uh, therefore, who was going to lead them? So the whole idea of the Messiah began to develop. But on the other hand, the high priest and the priest of the temple, the temple rulers, you might say, began to quarrel among themselves because each one of them wanted their particular role in saying how this was all going to develop. At the time of Christ, the Sanhedrin, which was all of the participants or the rulers of the temple, and you might sort of put it in comparison to our Congress. Our Congress is made up of two primary um, ruling parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, but there are uh, three or four other parties also the Green Party, the Liberals, and, uh, you know, a few others that nobody hears about because they don't have any real say-so. But in the Sanhedrin of the first century A.D., you had six different, rule, six, six different parties involved. 
you had the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which were the dominant two parties. But you also had the Essenes, the, the uh, Zealots, and a couple other minor uh, parties there. And they began to quarrel among themselves. And the, the Essenes didn't like uh, some of the things that the Pharisees and the Sadducees did. So they went out and uh, they decided to leave Jerusalem and they established their own community at Masada, uh, which is further out in the desert. And they were the ones that eventually um, left their writings behind and became the uh, Qumran uh, records that were discovered in 1947 in the caves there in Qumran. Uh, very interesting. Uh, but they didn't put much light on anything because they were pretty much following uh, some of the things that were already known. But the whole idea was the worship of God had again disintegrated. And Finally, when God himself, in the form of Jesus Christ, came about, faced the people, they didn't recognize him because they had so far removed their understanding of covenant and what God really wanted that they didn't want to hear what Christ had to say. They were looking for somebody like David who would save them, save them, save them, you know. And they were whining and crying because they wanted another David who would wipe out the Romans and put them back into early, uh, earthly sovereign power. But that was not part of God's plan of salvation. And so they had a number of problems that just got overwhelmed, and it took the form of the worship within the temple became almost the same as worshiping the pagan gods that had taken place before. And so the idea of this whore of Babylon that is used in this book here of Revelation is to disguise what the writer is truly saying about how Jerusalem and the temple rulers of the time of Christ has so uh, adulterated their relationship with God that there could be no return. And that is why at the death of Christ on the Good Friday, when the veil of the temple was torn, it was torn, as one of the writers say, it was torn from top to bottom. Now this temp this veil was a very heavy material. It was not, you know, some little flimsy lace or something. It was a very heavy material and if you think about it, it was 18 feet high. So how could that happen? It was 
as if God himself took that and tore it apart from top to bottom, signifying that the temple was no longer where he wanted to be because it was a place of adulteration. Now, he still gave them 40 years to find their way because the resurrection of Jesus Christ should have awakened these people to understand that what Christ had been preaching and teaching and what the prophets had been preaching and teaching before him was what God really wanted and what God had really tried to instill in the people and the meaning of the covenant. But the covenant now had been dissolved because the people refused and the crucifixion of God himself in the form of Jesus Christ was the last straw. So, getting back to this book here, the writer is calling Jerusalem Babylon the whore. And if you think about it, in the Gospel of John, there is the story of the woman at the well, and I've told this story many times to, to some of you, and just bear with me for those of you who've heard it before. But the story of the well, of Jesus at the well, is uh, indicative of some of what I just said, particularly the idea of Jerusalem being the whore of Babylon. In Jewish uh, thought, any infidelity, though it may have nothing to do with sex, was often equated with uh, sexual inf infidelity uh, just the same because it was just as important. And the story of the woman at the well, Jesus is sitting at this well in his traveling from Galilee down to Jerusalem with his apostles. And the apostles go off to purchase food and supplies in the town. And he's sitting there uh, resting himself. And this woman comes along with an empty jar for some water. And he asks her for a cup of water. And she is amazed because she knows he's a Jew and she's a Samaritan. But uh, he enters into a conversation, which was a big no-no, uh, because the Jewish people had separated themselves from all other nations, particularly the Samaritans. Um, and he asks her for a cup of water, and they start a conversation. And she talks about her beliefs, and he says, eventually you will believe uh, the same as uh, the Jewish people, but he was referring actually to the Jewish people who accepted him at a later time. But, oh, she's amazed at what he says, and uh, she seems to realize that 
he knows more about her than uh, she suspects. And he says to go to her, to go and get your husband and bring him back. And she says, well, I have no husband. And he says, well, that's right. You spoke well and truthfully because you've had five husbands and the man you're living with now isn't your husband. Well, this is an allegory. This is not a historical event. This is an allegory that the Gospel of John is trying to present. Okay? The woman comes to the well with an empty jar. The woman represents Judaism. She's coming with an empty jar. The empty jar represents their faith, which is empty because it was all based on earthly ideas, concepts, and desires. The five husbands that she lived with is Assyria, Egypt, Persia, or Babylonia, Greeks, and the guy she's with now is the Romans. Does that make sense? And the leaders, the rulers of the of Judaism during each of those sessions converted with their conquerors to save their own hides. Rather than oppose their conquerors, they got into cahoots with them, you might say, putting a little on. And that is why Christ is saying to this woman who represents the sour side or the poor side of Judaism because they were only half Jews. Remember, they were the people from Assyria who were brought in to take the place of the Jewish people of the northern kingdom that were carted off to Assyria like the Babylonians carted off the people from the southern kingdom at a later period. So they were only half Jews. They tried to assimilate, but the Jewish people wouldn't open up. The Jewish people, who were supposed to be a light to the nations, were, or on the other hand, had made them an exclusive community and did not want to bother with anyone else. So they disobeyed God. They did not fulfill the obligation of the covenant. And that is why the city of Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, as well as the temple being destroyed, because it was God's way of allowing the Romans to do this in order to show his total withdrawal of his covenant from the Jewish people. Does that make sense? Hello? Hello? Uh, the whole idea of the destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem was a signal that God had withdrawn the first covenant from the Jewish people 
because they failed to fulfill their part of the deal. And that is why at the Last Supper, when he breaks the bread and distributes it to his apostles and does the same with the cup of wine that he blesses and distributes those it to his apostles saying that this is the cup of salvation that is being offered for all mankind signifying that now the chosen people that were the Jewish people of before has now been dissolved and the people of God are those who accept the teachings of Jesus Christ. So when we get into this, that's a long way around, I know, uh, and for some of you, it probably is well, oh, um, I've heard that many times before. Yes, Chet? That is a very good question. Uh, Chet's question is, why did it take God 40 years uh, after the death and resurrection of Christ to destroy the temple? That is a sign of God's benevolence and love of all mankind, of his creation, hoping that the Jewish people, in trying to understand what Paul and all of the other writers of the New Testament were writing and trying to teach, would permeate throughout all of Jerusalem. Again, a sign of God's love. God does not want people to be condemned. But through ignorance, through disregard, disinterest, or outright rejection, it's going to happen. I want to read from this book here, which I have sort of a love-hate relationship with. Uh, I don't totally agree with some of the things he says, but nevertheless, there are a lot of good things in here too, and that's true with all of these. The book of Revelation has uh, so many... Uh, people who love it, and so many people who just disregard or condemn it. Let me go, let me go on, uh, read some of this here. I'm not going to go too far, but um, Judaism uh, came to understand that Yahweh is not just the God of, Jeru of Judaism, but it, uh, is, uh, let's see, I lost my place here. Judaism came to understand that Yahweh is not just the God of Jew Judaism, but is the only God of all creation. This change in perspective was revolutionary to the nth degree and wouldn't be accepted by other peoples of the world for a number of centuries. Judaism moved to a very different understanding of God than on what their own scriptural record was based. Furthermore, as the only people with this understanding, 
they could gain no assistance from the experience of any other nation. In other words, their writings did not reflect uh, a lot of the covenant that God really wanted, with the exception of the book of Deuteronomy. And therefore, they really had no counterpart or no comparison. They were called to live out a covenant relationship with God far different from what they originally knew or expected. Jerusalem had the great message of God that must be kept for all people because there was only one God and therefore one creator of all people. Yet, instead of inviting outsiders into the relationship, this was a, a time when Judaism became a very uh, separate, came, became very separate from the pagans and they became uh, an exclusive nation unto themselves. And that was just exact, exactly the opposite of what God wanted them. So that is why the whole idea of, of the first covenant being withdrawn. is important to understand. Sorry for the hesitation. Let's get into chapter 17 here. I hope that this long uh, explanation will give you some background as we go through this, and I'll explain it a little bit better as we go. It's entitled, Babylon the Great. Then one of the seven angels, and we're still talking about, you know, the end of the uh, last of the three great plagues, uh, the seals, the trumpets, and now the bowls. This is the last of, of that. Then one of the seven angels who were holding the seven bowls came and said to me, come here, I will show you the judgment on the great harlot who lives uh, near the many waters. Now the harlot here is a euphemism for Jerusalem itself and the Jewish temple leaders. The kings of the earth have had intercourse with her. As I've said before, they were in cahoots with all of their captors. And the inhabitants of the earth became drunk on the wine of her harlotry. Then he carried he, meaning the angel, then he carried me away in spirit to a deserted place where I saw a woman seated on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names, with seven heads and ten horns. All right. If you take out that schedule that I uh, prepared for you before to show the beast from across the water and the beast from the sea, or, or the land, rather, uh, that is really what we have here. Now, this is a little confusing because some of the description here could be referring to the Roman Empire, but almost all of it really is intended to mean Jerusalem. I saw a woman seated on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and with seven heads and ten horns. The seven heads are actually the seven Herods or the Herodian dynasty. Uh, the ten horns 
there is no definite explanation. Horns are a sign of power uh, in Jewish vocabulary here, and uh, really I have no way of explaining that. The woman was wearing purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. This is, again, the Herodian dynasty that was established by the Romans and set in power. Herod the Great was not a full Jew. He was a half-Jew. He was an Edomian, um, meaning that his father was from Edom a small community uh, southeast of Israel. She held in her hand a gold cup that was filled with the abominable and sordid deeds of her harlotry. On her head was written a name which is a mystery, Babylon the Great the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman was drunk on the blood of the holy ones, on the blood of the witnesses to Jesus. This is the, if you uh, attended Mass this morning, you heard the uh, in the first reading how the prophet Jeremiah was conspired against by the uh, temple rulers of Judaism and they tried to kill him uh, as they killed all of the other prophets because they didn't like what uh, the prophets were saying. They were trying to protect their own uh, power and their positions, etc. And uh, therefore, in this particular uh, reading uh, from Jeremiah, they tried to kill him. Well, they eventually did succeed. Okay. <clears throat> when I saw her, I was greatly amazed. This is this is the uh, you know the, the woman on the beast. This is Judaism riding the coattails uh, of the Herodian dynasty. The angel said to me, why are you amazed? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw existed once, but now exists no longer, which would indicate that this, was, this book was written after the destruction of, Jer of Jerusalem. It would come up from the abyss and is headed for destruction. The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, shall be amazed when they see the beast because it existed once but exists no longer. Uh, let's go back for a minute. The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have been written in the book of life, I'm sorry, you're right. Whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world shall be amazed when they see the beast because it existed once but exists no longer. And yet it will come again. Now, it will come again. Judaism did rise after 
uh, you know, in about the second century, but it never became a nation of its own until the good graces of Harry Truman and uh, the United Nations in 1948. Okay. Now, here's the confusing part. Uh, the seven heads represent seven hills upon which the woman sits. Well, that would indicate Rome, because Rome is built on seven hills. Jerusalem is not. Jerusalem had two major uh, upper, uh, you know, elevations, you might say, but not cer certainly seven. So this is a, a little confusing, uh, and I have no way to explain it, neither did any of the other books that I looked at. Uh, they represent seven kings. Well, it just happens that both the Roman Empire and the Jewish Empire, up to this point in time, each had seven kings. Uh, five have already fallen, one still lives, and the last has not yet come. Uh, and when he comes, he must remain only a short time. Well, that would be true again of the last of the Herodian kings who uh, was king for a very short time. Okay. The beast that existed once but exists no longer is the eighth king. Uh, that has no explanation to my knowledge. But really belongs to the seven uh, and is headed for destruction. The ten horns that you saw re represent ten kings who have not yet been crowned. Uh, again, I have no explanation for that, and neither does anyone else. Uh, you've got to remember that this is written in sort of a, an apocalyptic format, and so there's a lot of exaggeration and things here to disguise it from the uh, ruling uh, power at the time, which of course was the Romans. Right? They are uh, one mind and will give their power and authority to the beast. Uh, again, that is the power of the Herodian dynasty actually came from Rome. They will fight with the lamb, and they did. Uh, but the lamb will conquer them, and he did. For he is lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called chosen and faithful. And then he said to me, the waters that you saw where the, where the heart of lives represent large numbers of people, nations, and tongues. The ten horns that you saw and the beast will hate the harlot. That's true. Rome actually hated Jerusalem and the Herodian dynasty but they had to work together. They will leave her desolate and naked. They will eat her flesh and conquer her with fire, which they did in the year 70 AD. For God has put it into their minds to carry out his purpose and to make them come to an agreement to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are accomplished. The woman who you saw represents the great city that has sovereignty over the kings of the earth. Well, 
uh, we're talking about Jerusalem, and that doesn't quite fit as far as I'm concerned. Going on to chapter 18 here. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth became illuminated by his splendor. He cried out in a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a haunt for demons. She is a cage for every unclean spirit, a cage for every unclean bird, a cage for every unclean and disgusting beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of her licentious passion. The kings of the earth had intercourse with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her drive for luxury. Uh, Jerusalem at this time had a great economy. Uh, and, of course, being uh, on near the water, not on the water, but near the, the water of the Mediterranean, had a great number of opportunities to interact with other nations, but not in the way God wanted them. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Depart from her, my people, so as not to take part in her sins and receive a share in her plagues. For her sins are piled up to the sky, and God remembers her crimes. Now remember uh, Jesus in Matthew chapter 25 warns the people of, at his time this is when he was still living here on earth, uh, to flee when these things happen, to flee out of Jerusalem particularly and out of Israel and go elsewhere where it would be safe. And most of them did. Uh, they went north uh, to the seven cities that were mentioned in the first part of here where the letters were sent to. And they also went to North Africa. And these were the same places that many of the people at the time of the Babylonian conquest back in the 6th century also fled to, to avoid being conquered. Verse 6. Pay her back as she has paid others. Pay her back double for her deeds. Into her cup pour double what she has poured. To the measure of her boasting and wantonness, repay her in torment and grief. For she has said to herself, I sit enthroned as queen. I uh, am no widow, and I will never know grief. Well, that, of course, uh, didn't hold true. Remember, we cannot take this literally. It has to be sort of filtered through the understanding of apocalyptic language. And therefore, her plagues will come in one day, pestilence, grief, and famine, and she will be consumed by fire. For mighty is the Lord God who judges her. Uh, at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem, a great many of these things did happen 
and Jerusalem never recovered its prominence until much, much later under very different conditions. And it wasn't until after King Constantine in the 4th century uh, relaxed many of the rules that held uh, Jerusalem uh, as a conquered nation. The kings of the earth who had, well, I already, but, <coughs> excuse me. The kings of the earth who had intercourse with her in their wantonness will weep and mourn over her when they see the smoke of her prior. They will keep their distance for fear of the torment inflicted on her. And they will say, alas, alas, great city, Babylon, mighty city, in one hour your judgment has come. Uh, this is going on and on. And I think you all get the idea. Need we go any further? Even chapter 19 up through, well, let's go up to chapter 19 because I want to come back and, and do some review here. After this, I heard what sounded like the voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation, glory, and might belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her harlotry. He has avenged on her the blood of her servants. They said a second time, Alleluia, smoke will rise from her forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. I want to stop here, because what does all this mean? And why did they take two chapters to talk about it uh, under such conditions? I think as we've said before, the book of Revelation really is sort of the last time God is officially, in writing, going to give us a warning that we must, in order to fulfill our role in his plan of salvation and be faithful to the new covenant, we must face the tastes and the dictates of society that have taken over and become our gods, uh, similar to the pagan gods of the first century BC and the first century AD. We have made iPads and smartphones and television, and sports, and Hollywood are gods today. A lot of people will uh, sort of deny that, but really, in reality, if they put things before God, then that becomes their God. 
And they may not think of it that way, they may not intend it that way, but they're not doing anything about it either. And so the book of Revelation is really trying to say, wake up people, you've got to take inventory of your relationship with Christ, with God, through Christ and start doing some uh, turning around of your lifestyle so that it reflects what God really wants of you. Now, that might be different for each and every one of you, but nevertheless, it will not be opposing, it will not be contradictory, it will be complementary to each and every one of you, if it is true. God has given each of us a portion uh, to fulfill in his role of salvation, his plan of salvation. And if we do not fulfill that, the plan will still go through, it still will go forward, but we will lose out. And that might sound harsh, but look at all of the things that have happened in the past. Again, just go back to the first reading in the Mass today about what happened to Jeremiah. The poor guy is doing what God wanted him to do, and yet he is being persecuted by his own people. And that's something that we have to face. We are all members of a family, and we have to be concerned, but we have to put God first in our life. And if we don't, then whatever is first becomes our God. And that is what God is going to judge us by. Any questions? I hate to sound so morbid, but that—that uh, that is part of my job, right? And that's the way I see it. And I think that's the way God wants us all to see it, is that our faith is something that is serious and precious. We cannot just say, oh, well, I'm a good person. I don't hurt anybody, and, you know, I go to Mass on Sunday, and, uh, you know, I put my dollar in the church uh, collection. Um, what's to worry about? God wants more than that from each of you. How often do you sit for a few minutes quietly at home or at church or in the office and really talk to God as anyone should. Talk. I don't necessarily mean to say prayers. You don't have to have the rosary or, or I know I know a fellow I went to school with years ago and he used to wear two or three rosaries around his neck. And I you know, he was a little weird. Um, <laughs> And I thought, you know, what good does that do if you don't live it? The other thing is, 
this book is called The Word of God. Well, yes, it's the Word of God. But it's still a book until you pick the Word of God up and live it. It is really not, does not come alive until you live it. And then you and God are working together. That's what it's all about. And you have to know and understand and feel that way. That you and God are working together to accomplish your particular role in God's plan of salvation. I've been doing this for going on close to 40 years. And that is what God has asked me to do. And I feel it. Sometimes I really feel it, you know. <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, I like the idea that God is working with me in helping you people see the light. Uh, that doesn't mean I don't have any problems. That doesn't mean I don't have bad days. That doesn't mean I don't have a bad cold like I did, you know, when we first started. No, I have all of the same problems that everyone else has. But I feel God is with me and helping me through this. Helping me to do what I'm doing. doesn't always come out real perfect when I hear... You know, I have to edit these uh, lectures when I'm recording them here so that they can be fitted onto a CD. And I thought, oh, man, why did I say that? <laughs> or I could have done that better. If, you know. But nevertheless, I hope you're getting the point. I hope you're getting something out of this that will help you in improving your relationship with Jesus Christ, or your, your improving your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. He is the face of God, and he is the divine and sacred Lamb of God that was sacrificed for us as the price being paid for the sins of all mankind that we couldn't pay because nothing we have as individuals is of value enough to the Father to erase the sins of all mankind. And that was necessary because in order to live with a divine God, we must be holy or made holy one way or the other. And the death of Jesus Christ opens the door for that. And we have to work at taking the benefits of what he gave us, his life, death, and resurrection, and using it as a support, you know, and as the nucleus, the power, the encouragement, the strength, etc., to fulfill our role in God's plan of salvation so that when we reach our end of life, God will welcome us into heaven. 
we might have to take a little side trip, you know. <laughs> but at least we'll eventually get there. And that's what it's all about. Yes, Gene. I just Well, it's both, but let me, I think Gene brought up a good point. He asked, why did the Babylonians conquer Israel? Actually, it was Judah at that time. All right. Was it because they wanted power? And the answer is yes. But he also said, or was it because God wanted to punish Judah or uh, Judaism uh, for being unfaithful? Well, and that's true too. What he did, what God does, God does not kill anybody, but mankind kills. And sometimes God will use that. So he took the advantage of allowing the Babylonians to conquer Judaism and the Jewish people. But it was also God's way of saying, wake up, Judah. Wake up, you Jewish people. You are not fulfilling the covenant that you had agreed to. And they finally did wake up in Jerusalem, in Babylon, under the synagogue system that was set up. That's where the synagogue system was begun, with the little house uh, places of study and prayer. And that's where their whole idea of a renewal in the Jewish faith took place. It sort of was born in Babylon, and as it got back to Israel, for a while it grew and prospered. And therefore it sort of spawned the idea of life after death with God in heaven, and later on, then, the idea of a Messiah. But at the same time, the ruling party began to fall apart and go back to the ideas of almost pagan worship. Does that answer your question? Okay. Thank you. Anyone else have a question? This is the time to... Yes, Dick? say before talking about you know, Christ in the living world that that was an allegory. Is that a new thought? No. Mm-hmm. No. Are there many other allegories in the New Testament? Yes. Yes. You might have the same one with the story of Nicodemus is an allegory. You have a number of those um, where they are not historical events. 
but they are stories made up to express a particular point. Now, the woman at the well story can be looked upon in an earthly way, you might say, as you know, just a casual meeting of a woman and they get to talking and so forth and so on. But really, it is intended in a, in a more broader sense as an allegory to represent the Jewish people being criticized for their lack of faith and the fact that Jerusalem, who this woman represents, uh, was in cahoots with five different nations. They're talked about as if they were husbands, but they were the five different nations that had really conquered uh, Israel or Judaism. And she had relations with them because it worked out that she was in cahoots with them in order to protect herself. Well, that's an allegory. It's, a, it's meant to be a teaching. Yeah. Yeah, we talked to the apostles. They said sophisticated that they could write an allegory. Well, huh? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, yeah, inspired them. Thank you, uh, Mike. <laughs> yeah, no. Yes, Mads? Well, how did he know she had the jar, the jar or the cup was empty that she didn't have no faith? How did he know? Well, remember, Jesus was God. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, Jesus was God. Of course, knows everything. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes. Uh, very little difference. Um, frankly, I can't give you a good explanation right now. I just never thought about it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'll have to look that one up because it, 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 and then I'll let you know next week. Yeah. Yeah. Any other questions? Oh goodness, we have some time here. Let's. Uh, well, but. Do you, are you getting the point? Okay. What revelation is all about? It is a last call, folks. Wake up. Uh, and as I've said before, the three, the three uh, catastrophes, you know, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls are like God saying, I've told you over and over and over. Wake up. You've got to follow the commitment of the covenant or you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. And that applies to us today just as much as it did to the people of the first century. Yes. Amen. Yes. Yeah, which had said for if you couldn't hear him, that the book of Revelation will never grow old because the message is the same for all people at all times. And that's true with all of the Bible, really. But you're right. I, I would assume more so uh, the book of Revelation than many other parts of the Bible. Yes. It is a wake-up call that applies to any people 
uh, in any time period and for all time. Yeah. Well, the Protestants are, the, the question was, is this interpretation uh, similar to Protestant interpretations? And I say, well, it's possible, but uh, unlikely. Most of them are concerned with the end of the world. And most of them are so uh, um, taken by the apocalyptic language that they get involved in that. And as I said, one of the books I have, which was written from a Protestant viewpoint, is 750 pages to explain something that doesn't take more than 10 to write. Uh, because they mince every single word, and then by the time you get through with it, you forget what the objective was in the first place. Uh, no, they go round in circles in most cases. I would assume that some people, yes, do get the idea. I wouldn't rule that out. But I would say, no, most of them are so concerned with the 666 number and uh, the thought of the end of the world, and what can we do about either one of those? Absolutely nothing. Uh, so the whole idea is be prepared for your death, which should start now. Yeah. Yeah. Any, any other questions? Let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we thank you for this time to explore, to understand, particularly the background behind this horrible phrase of the horror of Babylon. Help us then to understand it in relationship to us as individuals, that we aren't doing some of the same things that the people of the first century were accused of doing. Give us the strength and the wisdom to open our minds and our hearts to where our relationship with you is running short. That during this time of Lent, to spend it in renewing our relationship with you. So we thank you, dear Lord, for the time, the understanding, and the blessings of the book of Revelation. We praise you and thank you in all things. In Jesus' name.